Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about the Uyghurs. The vast northwestern region of China, known as Xinjiang, or New Territory to the Chinese, has been a subject of controversy for years now. For one thing, some insist on calling it East Turkestan, reflecting their political perspective. Allegations of human rights abuses in the region continue to dog the PRC government. And the specific allegations, obviously, would not have arisen but for Xinjiang's history, geography, and ethnic makeup. Geographically, it's really the eastern end of Central Asia. Historically, it was for some periods incorporated into the Chinese Empire, but usually not. In ancient times, different ethnic groups founded states here, including those whose DNA and languages were Indo-European, such as the now-extinct Tocharians. But in more recent centuries, the people known as the Uyghurs have been the dominant ethnic group in Xinjiang. Tonight I thought we could take a brief look at the history of the Uyghurs, who they are, and how they came to be. Forewarning, I am not Uyghur, and I have no particular knowledge about all things Uyghur. But since, to most people outside of Xinjiang, certainly to most people, I think, in the West, the word Uyghur is little more than a cipher, representing very vague meanings, if any, I thought it might be useful even just to lay out some basic historical facts. To paraphrase the American novelist Raymond Carver, what do we talk about when we talk about the Uyghurs? We should also make clear at the outset that the exact identity of any race or people or nation is, of course, always changing. Being a Greek in the ancient world and being a Greek today aren't the same thing. The ethnic makeup of the United States is constantly evolving, as the ethnic makeup of the Chinese have evolved for millennia. So it is with the Uyghurs. Also, the term Uyghur is obviously a transliteration from the Uyghurs' own language. Throughout history, the Chinese referred to the Uyghurs by different names, which were really also different transliterations of the same Turkic name. So today, in Chinese, Uyghurs are called Weiwur. During the Mongol Yuan Dynasty, they were called Weiwur, basically the same, other than differences of tone in Mandarin. Earlier still, during the Tang Dynasty, the Chinese called them Huigu until in 788 or 809, the records differ, when the Uyghurs themselves requested that the Chinese change the official transliteration to Huihu. This is because the second character there, Hu, means Kongdor, which the Uyghurs took as a positive symbol of themselves. And their country, at that time, came to be known to the Chinese as the Huihu Kaganate. And the Huihu Kaganate is 
probably as good a place to start as any. I say the Chinese called this country the Huihu Kaganate, but in Turkic they called it Tokus Oguz Budun, if I'm saying the Turkic name remotely accurately. Oguz actually meant community, and Tokus meant nine. So the Tokus Oguz was the community of nine surnames, nine clans. The nine clans originally fell within the Turkic Empire, or the first Turkic Kaganate. Oh yes, I suppose we could have started with the Turkic Kaganate, but how much time do you have? Long story short, the Turkic Kaganate was first formed in the mid-6th century, when China was still badly divided in its North and South Dynasties era. Then, with the founding of the Sui Dynasty in 581, followed by its replacement by the Tang Dynasty in 618, the Turkic Kaganate and the Chinese Empire fought a series of wars against each other. Indeed, the Turkic Kaganate was the chief foreign policy challenge of the Sui and early Tang eras. Actually, the Kaganate split into two in 583, east and west, in part due to strategy on the part of the Sui. In any event, the Tokus Ogus, the Uyghurs, being Turkic, originally formed a part of the Turkic Empire. But they seemed to have been a sort of underclass, a persecuted minority within the Turkic Kaganate. So in 605, the Uyghurs elected a new leader, whose name comes down in Chinese history books as Tejian. And he began to lead his people in resistance against the Turkic Kaganate to seek independence in cooperation with other nomadic tribes under the Turkic Kaganate, who were known to the Chinese as Tielu. For a time, Tejian fell into conflict with his own son, whose name comes down to us as Pusa, so that he exiled Pusa. But Pusa was a great warrior, and after Tejian's death, his people welcomed Pusa back into the fold and elected him leader to succeed his father. In 627, Pusa led his people in attacking the Turkic Kaganate in alliance with a Tielu nomadic nation called Shuyento. The Allies won a great victory against the Turkic Kaganate and won their independence. In 629, the third year of the reign of the great Emperor Taizong of Tang, the Tokus Ogus began to pay tribute to the Tang Empire, seeking Tang protection. In the same year, Emperor Taizong launched a campaign against the Eastern Turkic Kaganate. By the next year, 630, with the help of the Shuyento, Tang forces captured the Kagan of the Eastern Turkic Kaganate and brought that power to an end. After that, the Shuyento and the Tokus Ogus were the powers that remained in the northern steppes, although the Tokus Ogus was subordinate to the Shuyento. Emperor Taizong granted the leader of the Shuyento the title of Kagan, and by accepting that the Chinese emperor had the authority to grant such a title, the Shuyento 
also accepted status as a Tang vassal. Meanwhile, a part of the Tokus Ogus migrated into Tang territory and were allowed to settle. But then the Shrian turned against the Tang. So in 646, with the help of the Tokus Ogus, the Tang fought and destroyed the Shrian Now the Tokus Ogus was what remained. In 647, the new leader of the Tokus Ogus, Tumidu, proclaimed himself Kagan, meaning the Tokus Ogus was now formally a Kaganate in its own right, the Huigu Kaganate. And Emperor Taizong of Tang also granted him the titles of a Tang general and governor. This was imperial policy, of course. Let the leaders of the empire's subordinate nations remain their leaders and give them fancy titles, in addition, both to win and to demonstrate their fealty. Although poor Tumidu was murdered only a year later, in 648, when his nephew, who was sleeping with his wife, betrayed him to the Turkic leader who was trying to restore his own Kaganid. The Tang dynasty intervened, protecting the Uyghurs and endorsing Tumidu's son as the new Kagan. In the end, though, the Turkic Kaganate did manage to restore itself in 682, once again becoming the Tang dynasty's major external threat. Fast forward to the reign of Emperor Xuanzong, the high noon of Tang power, before the sun began to dip westward. In 742, the Uyghurs, again allied with other tribes and Tang China, attacked the latter Turkic Kaganate. Ultimately, by 745, the Uyghurs and the Tang and their allies destroyed the Turkic Kaganate for good this time. And it was the Uyghurs who killed the last Turkic Kagan and delivered his remains to the Tang court. So we can see the Uyghurs were emphatically friendly with Tang China during all these years. Unlike many other nomadic peoples, they didn't try to pillage the more settled society to their south, at least not during all these years when the Tang was strong. In fact, they pursued a policy of marriage alliance with Tang princes and emperors. In 756, a Tang prince took a Uyghur princess as his wife. In 758, the Uyghur Kagan married a Tang princess. In 788, another Tang princess went north to marry the Uyghur Kagan. Finally, yet another Tang princess did the same in 821. But, as many of you surely remember, the Tang came to be drastically weakened due to the Anshi Rebellion from 755 to 763. During the rebellion, not only was the Tang regime unable to control border areas, like the territory of the Uyghurs, but the Tang actually had to ask the Uyghurs for help in putting down the rebellion. So not only did the Uyghurs become functionally independent, but they felt they deserved to be rewarded for helping the Tang regime.
in 762, after helping the Tang retake the city of Luoyang, the Uyghurs helped themselves to the city's wealth, believing it rightfully theirs as their reward. In the ensuing decades, the Uyghur took over much of the territories in what the Chinese called the Western Lands, what is now Xinjiang. The Kagan, known to the Chinese as Yu or Li, who had fought on the Tang Empire's side in 762, was responsible for much of the ensuing conflict with the Tang, especially after he demanded trade with the Tang on exorbitant terms. Interestingly, he also introduced Manichaeism to his people, the religion born of ancient Persia that postulated not only a just god, but also his equal opposite. The religion that, through St. Augustine, also substantially influenced Christianity. The story goes that the Kagan brought back four Manichaean priests with him, not from Persia, but from the city of Luoyang in China, testifying to the religious diversity of Tang China. And he had the priests debate the traditional shamans. Adjudging the priests to have won the debate, the Kagan declared Manichaeism henceforth the national religion of the Uyghurs. But in 780, because of his hostility towards the Tang, Yu or Dengli Kagan was murdered by his own chancellor. Obviously, the Tang court was quite pleased about this, so they rewarded the murderous chancellor by granting him the title of Wu Yi Chenggong Kagan. It was Wu Yi Chenggong Kagan who asked the Chinese to change the name of the Uyghurs from Huige to Huihu. But the fact that he murdered his way to the top probably didn't bode well for the Uyghurs' future. In fact, the Uyghur Kaganate now fell into frequent civil conflict. Additionally, those Uyghurs who tried to move south into Tang China ended up fighting Tang forces, and many of them were killed. In 846, the formerly subordinate Yenisei Kyrgyz Kaganate defeated the Uyghur Kaganate. Surviving Uyghur tribes moved westward and divided into three branches. One branch landed in China's province of Gansu and became the ethnic group today called the Yogir or Yugu. Another branch went all the way to the Pamir Mountains and became a part of the Karahanian or in Persian El Afrasiab, meaning the Black Khanate, which became the first Turkic state to adopt Islam. The third branch ended up in the Torpan Basin in what is now eastern Xinjiang. Chinese sources call this branch the Gaochang Uyghurs, after the nearby town. These are the ancestors of modern-day Uyghurs. At least modern Uyghurs themselves started saying so in 1922. The Gaochang Uyghurs became a powerful nation for a time. Then they accepted vassalage under the Kitan Liao Empire when it ruled in the 10th and 11th centuries, 
and then its second incarnation, the Western Liao. With the rise of the Mongol Empire in 1209, the Gaochang Uyghurs rebelled against the Khitans and joined the Mongols. The Uyghurs thus became the first nation to peacefully and voluntarily join the Mongols, helping with the early development of their empire. Later, when the Mongol Empire fell into civil war, which is to say when the Yuan dynasty based in China fell into conflict with the Chagatai and the Ogadai Khanates, the Uyghurs were caught in the middle and suffered a great deal. In 1324, later in the Yuan dynasty, the eastern Chagatai Khanate had taken over the Torpan Basin. Because the Chagatai Khanate had already accepted Islam, the Uyghurs there at this time began to adopt Islam as well. Although a proportion of Uyghurs at the time refused Islam, or the dominion of the Chagatai Khanate, and so moved into Yuan China and became assimilated into other groups. In 1514, Sultan Said Khan, descendant of the rulers of Chagatai Khanate, established the Yarkant Khanate in today's Xinjiang, of which the Uyghurs were a part. After the Qing dynasty was established in China in the mid-17th century, the Yarkant Khanate maintained good relations with it. But in 1680, the power known as the Zongar Khanate conquered the Yarkant. The Uyghurs became their subject people. The Qing Empire, though, then made war on the Zongars, particularly under Emperor Qianlong. In 1755, the Qing destroyed the Zongar Khanate completely in what is often described as genocide. The Qing conquest of Zongaria led to the creation of Xinjiang as an administrative unit, and of course that name, Xinjiang, New Territories. Uyghur leaders whom the Zongars had imprisoned were now released, sent by the Qing authorities back to rule over their own people, but under the Qing, of course. These leaders then turned around and tried to fight the Qing, but they failed and were killed in 1759. The Qing then set up various governors and officials over the Uyghurs, but for the most part, the Uyghurs had full practical control over their own day-to-day -day life. Qing officials intervened very little. Additionally, the Qing destruction of the Zongars, who had followed Tibetan Buddhism, was a boon to the advancement of Islam in the area. Muslims filled the empty spaces left by the Zongars, and some Qing officials even promoted Islam. In the 1860s, Uyghurs rose up in rebellion against the Qing. Worth noting that this was during the rebellion in China known as the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, an incredibly 
destructive civil war, actually the third deadliest war in all of human history, behind only the two world wars. Also happening at the same time, from 1862 to 1873, was a Muslim rebellion within China proper, in the northwestern provinces of Shanxi and Gansu, which gave inspiration to the Uyghurs as well. So the Qing government had its hands full, which gave the Uyghurs and other players a window of opportunity. In 1867, the Khanate of Kokand, led by a Tajik called Muhammad Yaqub Beg, a name corrupted into Chinese as Agubai, invaded from Central Asia, establishing a new country within Xinjiang called Yetishe Khaliki, meaning the Khanate of Seven Cities. The Seven Cities being cities in Xinjiang that they had conquered. By the early 1870s, the Yakub Bek government had gained control of all of Xinjiang. But then, onto the stage stepped a man named Zuo Zongtang. Zuo Zongtang was a very important figure, one of the so-called four great statesmen of the late Qing, and he deserves an episode in his own right. You know that dish ubiquitous in American Chinese restaurants, General Tso's chicken? Well, so-called General Tso was none other than Zuo Zongtang. Never mind that the dish was actually invented in Taiwan in 1952 and had nothing to do with Zuo Zongtang, but had everything to do with a visit by a U.S. Navy admiral. Anyway, Zuo Zongtang deserves an episode in his own right, but today we'll just talk about him in relation to Xinjiang. In 1867, Zhou Zongtang had taken over command of the Qing army in Shanxi and Gansu, where the Muslim rebellion still raged. By 1872, he had largely suppressed this rebellion, and a number of the rebels escaped to Xinjiang to join Yakub Bek. Even as the rest of the Qing court still debated what to do about the Yakub Bek invasion, Zhou Zongtang decided that he must take action. Even so, after that, Zhou Zongtang actually spent a long time preparing for the campaign, intending to prepare slowly but fight fast. In the spring of 1876, he finally launched his campaign into Xinjiang. And, true to his plan, within a year and a half, by 1877, Zhou Zongtang succeeded in defeating Yakub Bek and recovering Xinjiang. Well, most of it anyway. It took a few more years to get the Russians out. Russia had, in effect, invaded Xinjiang as well in 1871, taking over the area called Yili. And it was only in 1881 that the Qing managed to get rid of the Russians. And in 1884, the Qing made Xinjiang a province, as opposed to a mere administrative region. In the early 20th century, Pan-Turkism became quite popular among Central Asian intellectuals. 
Pan-Turkism held that all Turkic-speaking peoples from Anatolia in Turkey to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang ought to form a single people. This ideology led to many Uyghur intellectuals to promote Uyghur identity. In the 1930s and 1940s, Uyghur elites twice tried to establish a Republic of East Turkestan. But East Turkestan was not to be. And Xinjiang and the Uyghurs were caught between the larger forces at work in the first half of the 20th century. There was the great game that Russia and Britain were playing against each other. There was the Republican Revolution in China, followed by years of warlordism. Xinjiang had its own warlord, a fellow named Sheng Shicai. But we're going to tell his fascinating story in another episode, to do it justice. Then, of course, there was World War II, and China's desperate fight for survival against Imperial Japan. After that, the Chinese Civil War between the Nationalists and the Communists ended with the Communist victory in 1949. So, the Communist government, the People's Republic of China, took control of Xinjiang. That brings us almost up to the present. If you want to know more about what's going on with the Uyghurs in recent years and at the present, you should go ahead and read about it. If you do, when you come across the word Uyghurs now, hopefully you'll have a better sense of the people's history. That was why we did this episode. All right. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.